From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the nation's special issue on thinking big about the political requirements and political opportunities of this historic moment. Christopher Shea, a senior editor at The Nation, will have the big picture. Also, it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, have those kids been busy this week. First up today, it's time to think big about the coronavirus crisis and the 40 million workers who've lost their jobs while the rest struggle to hold on to what they've got. Everything seems more fragile now, and the cruelty of the system has never been clearer. For some big thinking about where we need to go now and how to get there, we turn again to Mike Davis. Of course, he's a contributing editor at The Nation, where he's written the lead piece in the new special issue on thinking big about the political requirements and political opportunities of the present crisis. Mike wrote a prescient book on virus pandemics 15 years ago that was called The Monster at Our Door. And for the last couple of months, he's written widely and spoken widely on the social and political world and the epidemiology of COVID-19. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Will you ask us to imagine the dilemma facing a 34-year-old single mom in Wyoming who waits tables at a truck stop on Interstate 80? What's your picture of her and her world? This is a huge truck stop. It's like a miniature city. And uh, she has to go back to work. But her boss tells her, look, can't wear a mask. The truck drivers come here to see your smile. But at the same time, she has a mother at home who takes care of her toddler because she works night shifts, who has emphysema and relies on an oxygen tank. Now, her ex-husband, who's an oil rigger, who's just lost his job, can't pay alimony, mortgages due. How does she make the choice between saving her home and her mother's safety? And I compare this with the choice made in the famous uh, William Starman novel, Sophie's Choice, which is made into a movie that won Meryl Streep the Academy Award, where Sophie... Uh, a young mother arrives at Auschwitz with her two small children and begs that they be spared. But the sadistic camp doctor says, I will spare one. Choose right now. If you don't, I will kill both. And it just struck me that millions, tens of millions of Americans have either had to make this, have already made this choice or are making similar choices right now. Because according to a Washington Post poll uh, two or three weeks ago, fully a third of the essential workforce either has a pre-existing condition or lives in a household with someone who has heart problems, respiratory problems, diabetes. So these are millions of people put in this situation. And they're given, of course, no guidance whatsoever from the federal government. They lack it in most cases from the state government. This has been one of the most morally appalling things about how this has been handled. I mean, if there were 
protective equipment, a national plan, compulsory enforcement of safe working conditions, people wouldn't have to make these choices, or at least fewer people would have to. But the opposite's occurred now. And I argue in Nation article that uh, this has one been, been one of the driving forces behind this extraordinary rank-and-file rebellion that swept the essential workforce since the middle of March, producing national actions like the big national nurses' strike on the mid-April and May Day, a whole series of national actions by essential workers. We record our show in L.A., and the news here uh, this week is that outbreaks of COVID-19 have struck nine industrial facilities in Vernon, including five meatpacking plants. The largest outbreak occurred at the Smithfield Foods-owned Farmer John plant, producer of the well-known Dodger Dog, where 153 employees tested positive for COVID-19. What should we know about Smithfield Foods and the Farmer John plant in Vernon and other places like it? Smithfield is one of the big three in uh, meat processing and its plants in Iowa and South Dakota have seen some of the largest uh, outbreaks. Uh, It's possible that more than half of the uh, meat processing workers in the country have had an infection, 70-some have died from it. When President Trump used the Defense Production Act at the end of April to compel meat processing workers to go back to work, his vice president, Pence, assured people that workers' safety was uppermost in the minds and first priority. In fact, it's been the last priority. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has refused to issue enforceable guidelines for worker safety in the meat processing industry. And workers who are represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is the largest private sector union in the country, have been totally locked out of information about what's going on in their plants. And this has involved federal complicity at all. Because in the order that Trump gave on the 28th of April, he basically said, look, states and local governments have no enforcement authority from here on in the meat processing industry. But yet the federal government is not giving any rules that can be enforced or ensuring the kind of inspections that need to be uh, mandatory in these these plants. It's been hiding the information. I mean, Trump accuses China of concealing the initial dimensions of of the outbreak. But this is exactly what's going on in the meat processing industry and in other large sectors of the U.S. economy, where employers of the government are not telling unions and not telling workers what's really going on, uh, especially in cases where there is testing, but the information then stays uh, secret. For your piece in the new issue of The Nation, uh, you write about a website I, I didn't know about, which charts labor protests and strikes. It's called marks21us.org, and it runs a COVID-19 class struggle timeline with 
amazing reports from all over the place and photos from all over the place. For example, it says there's seven separate strikes right now in the Yakima Valley in Washington State, which you know is famous for its vineyards and its and its beer making. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the national extent of labor action here, which has been barely reported in the mainstream media. Well, using this incredibly useful site, but it's not complete by any means. And then kind of surfing through international union sites and different stories, I became convinced that there have been at least 500 actions at different workplaces across the country from fast food restaurants to hospitals to meat processing. And only in a few cases have they had official support of the union. The nurses' union has been active in job actions. They really stand out. The SEIU has supported its workers because 70% of them uh, stayed at work in essential industries. And in the case of Massachusetts, there was an almost unknown two-week-long job protests by carpenters supported by the uh, Carpenters Council in Massachusetts. But the majority of these actions have been organized by workers themselves or by uh, uh, rank-and-file organizing committees, sometimes supported by internationals like the SEIU, sometimes not. And if you go back in history, the last time I think we've seen so many rank and file strikes and protests was actually in the, uh, the early 1970s. So, you know, this is almost 50 years later. Why don't we know about these strikes when, on the other hand, a totally phony from the top down organized uh, protest movement backed by the Freedom Works and the Tea Party Patriots and the Susan B. Anthony list leading a you know anti-abortion group and so on, and funded by hedge fund billionaires and oil and gas people and so on. This movement, which is orchestrated from within the White House, occupies the, the headlines constantly. And I think the answer to that is not just to blame, blame the media for not covering the wildcat strikes. Why haven't we had a national campaign for worker safety, both as a protest movement, but also linked to some of the important legislation that's been put on the table by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I haven't noticed that the Democratic Party is mobilizing Bernie supporters or anybody else to build a national protest movement around worker safety. Have, have I missed something that Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi is doing? Uh, it's actually been incredible. I mean, Pelosi has been the iron lady in forcing uh, concessions in the relief bills, including the current one, the HEROES Act, passed by the House that stands no chance of being passed until at least Democrats in power. And it contains all kinds of giveaways to the health insurance industry and $150 billion in tax breaks to the super rich. I, I absolutely baffled why they're in uh, the legislation uh, to begin with. And they've been denounced by, of course, the Progressive Caucus. But the point is that Republicans since the days of the tax revolt and Ronald Reagan have understood the importance of protest movements, 
real or artificial in driving forth their policies, creating a, a sense of power and dominating the media. The last thing in the world that establishment Democrats, corporate Democrats would do is hand pitchforks to the Democratic base. Their role is to uh, suppress such protests and to absorb protest movements. So this extraordinary situation today, we have tens of thousands of young people who've been active volunteers in the Sanders campaign and other struggles who are just sitting at home. They get, like all of us do from our revolution, emails telling us to donate to progressive candidates. But there's been absolutely no attempt to mobilize this, this space, to create a protest movement that's rooted in the workplace protest and puts this whole matter of Sophie's choices and workplace safety and the need for strict workplace uh, health and safety regulation, but then the center of the media, you know, and of, of, of politics. Otherwise, what's going on is hidden from view. And Biden, in my opinion, has just been extraordinary. You know, it's only yesterday that he emerged from his bunker for the first time in public. AOC has been walking the streets of her uh, district in New York for weeks. Uh, he should have come out of hiding, you know, with a mask and using proper uh, uh, social distancing to support these protests, to encourage people to fight for uh, the safety of a workforce where the threat still exists of hundreds of thousands of people dying by Christmas over the course of the next 18 months. Well, a lot of people tell us Everything is going to change on January 20th. Joe Biden will be president. The Democrats will control the Senate. And within the first day, the first week, the actions will finally be taken that we need. What do you say to that? Well, I think it's kind of ridiculous, actually. Because again, in the first place, it doesn't comprehend the role that protests and mass mobilization play in empowering policies and enacting legislation. But secondly, the kind of Sophie's choice that I'm talking about, and also the whole question of the solvency of local and state governments, this is in the here and now. People are facing life and death decisions. They're not gonna wait till inauguration or sometime in the middle of, of New Year for these policies to be enacted. They wanna see people in movement right now. They wanna know that other people really have their backs in this crisis. I mean, I find it almost obscene now, this ritual of applauding healthcare workers as heroes, but at the same time, not fighting for protective gear that would allow them to safeguard their families or them, themselves. And this has been a huge wasted, uh, a historically wasted opportunity. We should have been on top of this in March when it was clear that Trump policies were endangering and going to kill tens of thousands of, of Americans. That should have been the point at which we began to build a movement. Mike Davis's Think Big piece is the lead article in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Mike. You're quite welcome, John.
This week, The Nation is publishing a special double issue featuring more than half a dozen articles, all with the same starting point. Think big. For a preview, we turn to the magazine's senior editor, Christopher Shea. Christopher, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You open the special issue by saying we are at a start-from-scratch moment. What do you mean? What I mean by that is the pandemic and the COVID crisis are, are really making clear so many of the existing problems. The coronavirus is really killing along the lines of the already existing fissures in the country. And as it becomes more obvious, as this sort of volcano of rage sort of begins to emerge in the U.S., it really is a chance for us to to think big, to sort of reimagine what we want and what we can have in this country. So the issue opens with Mike Davis, who, of course, needs no introduction. But tell us a little about his piece. Oh, it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic piece. His piece is, is actually somewhat hopeful in a lot of ways, which is not necessarily a word that people always associate with him. It started out sort of talking about all these worker actions across the country as sort of a beginning point for really sort of overturning what work and what labor relations are in the country. And uh, the nation recently created a new position on the masthead called Strikes Correspondent. And the magazine's Strikes Correspondent is Jane McAlevey. She's a longtime labor organizer and activist based in Berkeley. She writes here not about strikes, but about taxes. Tell us about that. One of the things that Jane does such a good job at is thinking strategically. She's very good at pinpointing exactly where our efforts should be going in order to maximize uh, our movement's impact. Uh, And she makes a very good point that all of our progressive dreams for the future are going to require a massive amount of government expenditure. And for that to happen, uh, we need to be able to raise taxes, particularly on the rich. Uh, And so with this piece, she focuses on a anti-austerity movement in California and sort of draws lessons from there about how we can move past, in California's case, Prop 13, uh, but but uh, how we can move past these austerity measures. The coronavirus crisis requires big thinking about health care in America, of course. And for that, you enlisted Zoe Carpenter. She's an award-winning writer on social justice. And you have a wonderful quote from her. While COVID-19 is novel, its impact at the community level was predictable. Let's talk about that. A lot of Zoe's piece is really exploring the ways in which the coronavirus was able to take advantage of existing disparities within the country. Uh, And one thing that piece does a wonderful job at doing is looking at what cities and localities are doing, given the fact that there's been such a dearth of leadership from the federal level. So, for instance, she mentions that Milwaukee declared inequality a public health issue. And these sorts of ways of new framing at the local level should be informing uh, our discussions uh, on a much broader view. And for more uh, thinking big, you enlisted Eli Mistal. He's officially the nation's justice correspondent. Uh, but this piece isn't about the law or the Supreme Court, he says he can't imagine that people will ever go back to work the way they used to. Please explain. Ali is not just uh, our justice correspondent. He's also one of the funniest writers you will, you will see in our pages. So what he says is, 
the way we've worked since the industrial revolution is people come to a workplace and there's an overseer you know who's trying to get you to make your widget as fast as possible and he wants to overturn that and allow people to work from home uh, and he thinks there's a good chance to allow more flexibility given the fact that he just can't imagine people going on going on the subway or commuting or being in um, long traffic jams as they used to after after going through this period. In the piece, he refers to subways as disease tubes, which I thought was a particularly <laughs> memorable way of phrasing it. Yes. Bryce Covert is an award-winning writer on the economy. In addition to writing for The Nation, she's a contributing op-ed writer at The New York Times. Her writing has appeared in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, New York Magazine. Introducing her piece... You write about the wonderful evening ritual on the streets of New York where everybody comes out of their stay-at-home apartments at 7 o'clock to cheer for the essential frontline workers as the shift changes at local hospitals. But Bryce Covert doesn't just cheer for the essential workers. Cheering for essential workers isn't enough. We have to pay them enough to live. We have to ensure that they have health care, and we have to make sure that they can work safely on the job. What Bryce's piece does such a great job at is sort of not just describing the challenges, but also talking about the way in which the workers are coming together to demand to be valued by society. And that takes us to unions. Bill Fletcher Jr. takes up that crucial issue. Tell us about Bill Fletcher and his piece. Bill Fletcher is a legendary longtime union activist and writer. And he just lays out a few ways where nations can re-energize the labor movement. He accuses a lot of the big trade unions of just working to protect these dwindling fiefdoms of dues-paying members and not really coming together to work uh, for the entire working class. He wants the unions to think big. He wants them to go bold. He's, he's questioning why they're not, why the big unions aren't coming together to try and organize uh, public workers in the South or organize Walmart. He, he thinks there's a way that unions should be coming together to fight for everyone in the working class and not just their dues payers. And we need the Democratic Party to win the White House and the Senate on November 3rd and also to hold on to their House majority, but not the Democratic Party as it exists right now. That's what John Nichols says. John Nichols, in, in an adapted excerpt from his recent book, is looking to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Vice President Wallace as a source of inspiration for current-day Democratic Party. And finally... The nation's special issue on Thinking Big turns to a young writer named Julian Brave Noisecat. He's written for The Nation a couple times before. He's one of the people who helped draft the Green New Deal. He's an indigenous activist, which means he's got a different starting point from a lot of the rest of us. A lot of us have this feeling that the coronavirus is, has this apocalyptic feel, but these types of shocks and these types of horrors that we're going through now aren't aren't anything new. So he, he so Julian Brave Noise Cat starts this out saying that us native peoples are uh, are post-apocalyptic. And so he goes through this idea that there's this guidance 
that Native peoples can have, having sort of survived so much hardship. And so having gone through plagues and disease and violence for hundreds of years, being sort of part of so many of the darkest moments of U.S. history, there's something to be gained from looking to Indigenous communities and sort of understanding how they can emerge from such tragedy still with the sense of humor, still knowing who they are, still knowing what they stand for. He's able to talk about this in this piece primarily by talking to three very brilliant uh, Indigenous activists across the U.S. So The Nation this week is publishing a special double issue on Thinking Big because we are at a start-from-scratch moment. We've been speaking with the magazine's senior editor, Christopher Shea. Christopher, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric, told by Amy Willens. Boy, those kids have been busy this week. Amy, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning work on Haiti and... She had an op-ed in the New York Times this week. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, let's start this week with a little bit of legal news about the Trump kids. There's a class action suit that's been going on for many, many years that have made a little bit of progress uh, on behalf of the plaintiffs today, uh, this week. Uh, Tell us about the latest. Well, it was not put on hold. It was allowed to move forward through the federal court system. It's a class action suit in which uh, the Trump children and uh, Donald Trump, the president, are accused of promoting a pyramid-type fraud, alleging that they were guilty not just of fraud but false advertising in promoting a marketing company and that in exchange the family received millions of dollars in secret payments. That's the allegation of this suit. One of the arguments the plaintiffs made was that many, many small investors, it's a typical pyramid scheme, many, many small investors contributing as much as $100, $200, things that mattered to them, possibly, but were not seen by the Trump family as very big amounts of money. But they paid Donald Trump, it is alleged, uh, $450,000 repeatedly in speaking fees. So this thing is moving forward. It's a little bit like Jarndyce and Jarndyce in in, uh, Bleak House by Dickens. It goes and it goes and it goes, but it doesn't seem to finally get resolved. But it's just another of those scandals that if it were any other president, it would be a gigantic big deal. But in this family, it's like just one among a billion gigantic big deals. Eric Trump, he's the youngest of Ivana's children, made the news recently when he seemed to claim that the Democrats created the coronavirus to undermine the Trump campaign. What exactly did he say? Well, he didn't say it. He implied it. He said... So it's very destructive and um, it's stopping Donald Trump from doing what he does best, his giant rallies where 50,000 people attend. Eric said that. And then he said, quote, and after November 3rd, coronavirus will magically all of a sudden go away and disappear. And then he added with a word that I did not expect him to know, This is a very cognizant strategy they are trying to employ. 
So what he's doing there, he's blaming the Democrats for the virus, and he's saying that they can manipulate it and they will make it go away. Apparently, he believes they will make it go away once they have won the White House. Because otherwise, why would they make it go away? They would keep it going. So he must assume that he's going to lose the election. I don't know why. Um, And the other thing that's interesting to me about this is that Donald Trump Jr. has also spoken in these terms about the virus, but he said that it will magically go away. Uh, having nothing to do with the Democrats. <laughs> He's expecting it to go away this weekend. Ah. And so is his dad. He has said it's going away. It's disappearing. So we'll see who's right about when the virus disappears. And whether it's a fraud being perpetrated by the Democrats to deny Donald Trump his 50,000-person audience at the Republican National Convention. Yes, and his other fun rallies. Don Jr. has been in the news also for his... Instagram account, did he suggest that Joe Biden molested children? Oh, my God, this thing. It was kind of a meme type of thing. I'm not sure you can say that. Sorry, millennials, if any of you are listening. <laughs> but it was uh, one half of the screen showed someone saying, see you later, alligator. I think that was Biden saying it. And then on the other side, it said, in a while, pedophile to Biden, making out that Biden was a pedophile. And then this went crazy on the internet, of course, because it's so damn clever. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why? (laughs) And also because it contains a big lie, so they love that. And and Don claimed that he did not understand it to be an accusation of pedophilia against Biden, but just it was funny. And it rhymed. Well, the biggest news story about any of them was about Jared. There was a big investigation by the New York Times of Jared's work uh, heading the White House effort to overcome the critical shortage of masks and gloves and other protective equipment to battle the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, This is not the, the flights from China. This is a different operation that I didn't really know much about that Jared was also in charge of. What was this effort that the New York Times investigated, organized by Jared, and and how successful was it? You know, the Trump administration doesn't have a lot of confidence in any branch of government, and it seems to hold every branch of government as part of the deep state. Even the way it's treated FEMA during this real emergency has been sort of uh, disregarding of all that FEMA has achieved in its past. Now, of course, FEMA's had problems in its past, but it's a very well-equipped administration. So what happened was, you know, the sort of human interest story behind it was this doctor, Jeffrey Hendricks, who had longstanding contacts in China. He felt that he would be able to get millions of masks. This was pretty early on in the pandemic in the U.S. Millions of masks from very well-known suppliers in China. He reached out to FEMA in the early spring, but instead of reaching like officials and the kinds of procurement people he expected to reach, his proposal was fielded by a team of about 12 young volunteers whom he'd never heard of, uh, who had been recruited by Jared Kushner, fresh from his great successes in solving Middle East peace, was now in charge of this team inside of FEMA, overseen by a former aide to Ivanka Trump. It turned out there was a sort of whistleblower 
inside of this team who then gave the New York Times all sorts of documents about it and also told them what he or she thought of it. But what happened was these were kids fresh out of uh, working for, you know, financial companies and private equity. And the Trump Kushner element felt that they could kind of run around the bureaucracy and put the juice of the private sector into the search for masks. So Hendricks never got his contract to get these masks out of China that he knew he could get. Instead, there was a lot of favoritism and cronyism in the list these kids set up because they were being told that you have to get these certain VIPs on the list. They have ideas about how to get masks. So those people who were on the the list were some uh, Republican congressmen. That guy, Charlie Kirk, who's a, kind of a youth activist, but very, very right wing. He was on this list of people who were going to get PPEs for the uh, first responders. There was an, a former apprentice contestant. I find it hard to say those two words together. <laughs> apprentice contestant who was on the list. These were all Donald Trump insiders, and they were supposed to be given top consideration on this list called, it was a, a spreadsheet called VIP Update. However few of the leads collected by the Kushner dream team really panned out. They ignored all the networks and connections that were in place in order to uh, get these people in on the game. So decades of emergency planning was forgotten. The stuff that FEMA does was forgotten and pushed aside. But there was one interesting thing that the New York Times discovered. There was a Silicon Valley engineer who told this uh, team of uh, finance youngsters, as the New York Times sort of defines them, that he could provide a thousand ventilators. And so this tip was sent through the team to officials in New York. And the New York officials assumed since it was coming from FEMA that it had been vetted and they gave the guy a $69 million contract, which has so far produced not one ventilator. And now FEMA's trying to get the money back. The Trump administration at work, and Jared in particular at work. One final question. We've gone through all this without an update on what Ivanka has been up to for that. Of course, we have to look at her Instagram page. What do we find there? Ivanka is working from home, WFH. She's smiling broadly at a big laptop, and you're looking at her over the laptop. And she's wearing a Hermes scarf around her neck that, no doubt, could be kind of daintily lifted to cover nose and big smiling mouth, if necessary. And on the day before Memorial Day, she wrote on her Instagram feed, we've just learned about exciting new and innovative platforms the private sector has created to upskill and reskill our nation's workforce. That was what she wrote on, on her feed. And uh, that got a quarter million likes, by the way. So that's pretty impressive. And the first comment on there was from a supporter who said, first female president. One more thing about Jared. He did a big interview with Time magazine, utterly predictable, except for one kind of newsworthy remark that he made about the November election. What was that about? They asked him, Uh, If given the coronavirus and all the problems we're having right now, if he was sure that the presidential election would take place as scheduled. And his reply was, 
not sure I can commit one way or the other. But right now, that's the plan. Not sure if I can commit that the election will be held in November. This has been the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric, told by Amy Willens. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.